You may be seated this morning, and our kiddos are heading down with Mr. Maisie and Mr. Becker. What a day they're going to have with the mics. Have a great time, guys. I think Mike and Mike just wanted to wear their kid's t-shirt this morning, so they scheduled themselves on children's ministry. Well, here we are um, on Father's Day, and we are in the middle of our series on the Psalms of Ascent, and we're going to spend the next several weeks, as there's 15 of them, walking through the Psalms of Ascent, and it has been a, a great uh, privilege for me to be able to look at some of these psalms and preparing to speak with you this morning and next week and see just the way that God speaks through the psalms. The psalms are different as we look at them than when we preach through narratives or we preach through some of the letters of Paul. What we're looking at in the psalms, and in particular the psalms of ascent, um, these psalms between um, 120 and 134, 135, what we're seeing is, is poetic literature, right? We're, we're seeing songs, we're seeing poems, and what they do for us is they uh, describe for us, in particular this psalm, or they emit for us emotion. We see in the Word of God here songs or poems that um, are laid out in such a way that we, we hear in words as they're crafted, these poems, really many of them are crafted, the Psalms of Ascent, in an ascending kind of fashion, as are many other poems in the Psalms. But, but what they do for us is they depict for us an emotion. They depict for us and use language that describe or paint a picture for us, sometimes a feeling, in response to who God is, or in response to trouble, or difficulty, or tragedy. One of the things I love about the Psalms, and in particular the Psalms of Ascent, is they're just real. They're real. They're, uh, they're many times articulating or depicting just tough stuff, like life is hard, or this stinks, or God, where are you? Um, they're depicting emotions that, that many of us feel. They're, they're depicting emotions that, that we um, understand because these emotions, these difficulties are real to us. In this particular psalm, there's also a depiction of the emotion of joy, of heart leaping, of love, and, and it's also something that we understand. And so uh, it's interesting as we walk through the psalms to think about uh, the word of God, who God is, what he says to us, and watch the psalmist write a poem about an emotion in response to who God is, or in response, in this case, to Jerusalem. This particular psalm for dads, I think, is important. Because God has called us to love his people and his church and lead our families in this regard. And so let's read it together, and let's pray together, and then we'll jump into it, okay? Psalm 122. Psalm 122, a song of ascent of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. God, I just pray that you would speak to us through your word, speak to us through this ancient psalm, through this song of ascent that was sung so often as your people pilgrimed to Jerusalem. God, I just pray that, that the emotion of this, the reality of this, and the truth of this would shape our hearts this morning, that you would illuminate your word to us, that you would light it up so we see it, that you would do something in our hearts through it. God, only you can speak to us through your word the way that you do that, through your spirit. God, we thank you for revealed truth, and we just ask that it would somehow be lit up to our hearts and to our minds so that we would understand it or know it like we've never known it before. That's our prayer this morning. Speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. When I was a teenager... There was a house on 2nd Street in Solvay that I longed to be at. I would try to find a way to get there as often as possible. And in times of Syracuse weather and lake effect snow, always scheming to get stuck there because it's where Trish lived. <laughs> and I remember feeling like, how can I get there? I would like to go over. Bob Steves, who many of you know, was the guardian of that house. <laughs> and many times prevented my being there. <laughs> With good reason. But I wanted to be there. I wanted to get there. I'll never forget, I was a junior in high school, the blizzard of 93, who remembers that? And Bob was a snowplow driver for the town of Geddes. And so he knew, he was like Dave Icorn. The guy knows weather like it's, you know, he's, he's a, like a, a hobby meteorologist. And so he would know when snow was coming and, and I would try to get to Trisha's house and it was not easy. He'd be like, no, it's going to snow. You're going to get stuck here. Or you shouldn't be on the roads. And you, sh you shouldn't come over. So I remember scheming and plotting and planning, how can I get to Trisha's house before the blizzard of 93 hits? Because then I'm going to be stuck there for a couple days, right? Like, this would be a good thing. I managed it through one storm. I, I managed to get there. Uh, I don't know how I pulled it off, because it probably only happened once. And I did, it ended up being so bad that I had to, that I had to stay there. Um, and Debbie was more apt to allow me to come over than Bob in those days. <laughs> and as a father, I now understand. Uh, 
But I got over there, and Bob would go to bed early because he'd have to get up at about 3 in the morning to go plow the streets. And so I don't think he knew. I think that was it. He didn't know that I had stayed there. And, and I don't know if you know this about Bob, but he loves to scare people. He, he's inevitably going to come up behind you and stick his finger in your ear or make some kind of a noise or jump out of a closet and scare you. So my entire life with Bob and Debbie, I'm often weary around corners, and he has... He has scared me several times. So this particular snowstorm, I get to Trisha's house. I get stuck there. He doesn't know it because he had to go to bed early. And he has scared me several times by this point. And I fall asleep on the couch down in the living room. Lights are off. Everybody's in bed. It's about 3 in the morning. And Bob comes downstairs to make coffee. And, and I see him literally standing right next to my face as I'm laying on the couch. How many of you guys know this is an exciting moment for me? I'm laying on the couch, blankets up to my chin, Bob's got a cup of coffee and he's standing right next to me and he's looking out the window at the light to see how bad it's snowing before he goes to plow. And all I said was, is it snowing bad out there? <laughs> this man who had intimidated me so much up until this point screamed like a three-year-old girl and threw his coffee and jumped about 20 feet. I, I first found like elation and joy and then immediate fear as I saw him look, look down towards me. <clears throat> the psalmist in this, in this passage depicts joy. And, and he says in the first two verses, I was glad when they said to me. Uh, another translation says, my heart leapt with joy when they said to me that we were going to go to the house of the Lord. And this word is really a word for love. It's a word for, that's used many times for romantic love or between a husband and a wife, or, but it's also used for more, for more general usage in terms of just love, elation, expectation, anticipation. He can't wait to get to the house of the Lord. His heart leapt when he heard we were going to go to the house of the Lord. I was glad to know that I was going to be to the house of the Lord and that my feet were going to be inside the city gates of Jerusalem. And we see depicted here a joy. We see depicted here a love, an expectation, anticipating being with God's people in God's city, Jerusalem. What a powerful passage for us. This is a powerful passage for us in the day and age in which we live. I'm deeply saddened, often, as we see the gospel increase in many ways in our society, and we see um, the idea of secular, godless um, humanism increase in our society. And I think what we find, and I think the the, the thinking of most would be that in today's society, uh, secularism and humanism and an idea of naturalism has, has increased and that somehow Christianity or the idea of faith has, has waned. But I think that's untrue. What's happened is they've both increased in exponential ways. Those who have faith and those who have a different faith, a faith in naturalism or themselves because it's not, it's not without faith. It's got its own faith to it. 
And what we're seeing is an increase in both, but a widening of the gap in our culture. And then what we've seen throughout church life is a response by churches with waning attendance. And, and, and I have been a part of this locally um, for many years, and, and I'm, I'm so grateful for God's readjusting of me through men of God and through the word of God to cause me to begin to understand church, church life, and God's people in a different way. Because there was definitely a day in my ministry and life um, in my vocation when I was vocationally a pastor and even now vocationally as a prosecutor and being a part of church planning, I've always had a, a thought towards as God has redeemed me, the people of God and the church of God, and, and what does it look like? What is it supposed to look like? And I think many times our response has been this idea of creating church in such a way that, that how can we get more people in the seats? How can we be uh, more attractive to people? How can we get people to be together in community with one another through affinity and through, through different things? I mean, how can we put on maybe a great Father's Day service that would attract dads? And I think what we've done subtly is we've attempted to create community through affinity and through attraction that could happen in the lives of people, regardless of the gospel. Does that make sense? And what God is calling his people to, and what God is calling the church to, one of the amazing things about the church, is that community is built through the reality of the gospel and the lives of all different kinds of people, but they come together because of Jesus. And I think part of where the church has gone in America, in response to this, has caused some disillusionment. Some people saying it didn't work for me in its absence of gospel-centered power. And what we've seen, in some respects, is a consumer-type attitude towards the body of Christ and towards church that says, well, I'm just going to church because I want to go to the church that's cool, that has the lights and fog machines or the awesome worship or the entertaining speaker or I just want to get fed or I just want someone to say something to me. And what church has amounted to in our culture is a place you go to to hear some cool things about how you can have a better life and how you can be entertained for 45 minutes to an hour if it goes past that. Man, they're really cutting into my Sunday and the people of God have become um, something of, uh, I'm going to go there to get something. And where the psalm readjusts us, where the word of God readjusts us, is, hey, guess what? The body of Christ and the community of God isn't about you. It's about God. Amen? I've gotten to a place where I've heard for years, I don't know if I can make it. We got sports. Isn't it amazing? When I was growing up, there was nothing scheduled on Sunday mornings. Come on. I mean, when I was growing up, the idea that a public school would have a sports event on a Sunday morning was unheard of. It did not happen because most of the people that went to the school on Sunday were going to be a part of the body of Christ. There is not a sports team today that doesn't require you now if you're going to really if you're going to really make it, to be on the club team or the off-season team, and every practice, every game, every tournament is win. 
Sunday morning. I can't make it, we got sports. I can't make it, we got this. I can't make it, we have this event. We can't, I remember a day, listen, there was a day in my life, I'm speaking to myself as much as I'm speaking to anybody else. I can't make it because really Sunday's my only day to sleep in, right? (laughs) I think we need to desperately reorient ourselves to what it is to be saved by grace, to be redeemed, and to be a part of the people of God. I think we need to reorient ourselves. What does the word of God say about his body? I love this poem because you have this pilgrim, and and what this depicts is these songs of ascent were sung while these pilgrims traveled to the city of God, while they traveled to Jerusalem to be a part of the people of God, and they would do this at least three times a year. And they would sing these songs. In this song in Psalm 122, he says, I was so glad. My heart leapt with joy. This word for love. I had this love because I was going to be in the Lord's house with the people of God. With my feet inside the city of Jerusalem. And I had to ask myself in reading this song. Do I feel that way about the body of Christ? Do I feel that joy, that gladness? Does my heart leap with anticipation every week, the first day of the week, the Lord's day to come and to worship God with God's people in his city, in his church, with his people? And if I don't feel that way, and I'm not asking anyone here to manufacture it, if I don't feel that way, why not? Is my mind and my heart oriented by the word of God to begin to understand his gospel and his people and how we fit together in the way that I should so that I begin to love like the psalmist loves being with the people of God. Do you hear what I'm saying this morning? Everybody okay? I know it's hot. All right. So we see this emotion. We love it. Why does the psalm Psalmists love it like this. What insight into worship do we get from this particular psalm? I think we get great insight into worship. He begins to talk about Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city. Look in verses 3 through 5. Jerusalem is built as a city that's bound firmly together to which tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. And what we see here is Jerusalem is this well-built city where these pilgrims traveled three times a year singing the songs of ascent, ascending to the city, to get to the city, to worship together, to be together. And you see the psalmist point out that all the tribes are there. All these different people are there together for one purpose. All different people from different tribes, different tongues, coming together traveling to the city of God to be together in the city of God for one purpose, to worship the Lord together. Isn't that amazing? The amazing miracle about the church of Jesus Christ is that different socioeconomic status, different race, different uh, vocations, different walks of life, different interests, different loves, different hobbies, from all walks of life, 
people come together on a Sunday to gather together from all different tribes, all different walks of life, all different areas of life to be together for one purpose. What is that purpose? We come together because of Jesus. Amen? We come together because Jesus has redeemed us and he saved us and he loves us. His peace and his security is, is in our lives because of Christ. And we're going to see the psalmist pray for that in a moment. What an amazing miracle. The miracle of the community of God isn't that we can all get together around interests. We can do that. We can start a, you know, a antique cars group for Jesus and have a bunch of guys get together who love antique cars and get along and maybe read some scripture and pray together and, and they can all go look at antique cars together. There's nothing wrong with that. We could start, uh, you know, I don't know, What's the yarn thing? Stitch uh, sewers for Jesus? I don't. You know what? No, that came to mind. See what happens when you don't. See what happens when you don't plan illustrations. It came to mind because I walk into Wegmans and I always seem to catch this group. I walk into the Wegmans on Route 57 and there is like three tables of women like yarning. Is that? It's not yarning. <laughs> Crocheting. Thank you. And they crochet together. Bikers, rollerbladers, uh, we could do a million affinity groups, crossfitters for Jesus. Everybody can go, you know, get tired and hurt and, and like lift and look awesome together for God. Um, and the thing about that kind of affinity is that that can happen with or without the gospel. The miracle of the body of Christ is that I get to know you and you get to know me. I get to know Doug and I get to know John Bousquet and I get to know uh, Tom Dugan. I get to know all of these people that I would otherwise not know from any kind of affinity in my life, any kind of hobby in my life. And we get together and we share life together and we worship God together because of who Jesus is. We confess our sins to each other. We read scripture together. We get our minds adjusted and oriented to the word of God together. We can pray for each other. We can serve each other. And the only place that that happens is in the body of Christ because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? There is no other place in your life where that can happen. And our affinity, the thing that brings us together, different ages, different financial status, different hobbies, different interests, the thing that brings us together is that one thing, to worship the Lord together because of who Jesus is and what he's done in our lives. Amen? And the psalmist is excited about this. The tribes are together. We're all together in Jerusalem to worship the Lord. What a beautiful thing. Jerusalem's a well-built city. And, and what it depicts is it depicts a city that doesn't have a stone out of place. A city that is built well with towers that are, are beautiful, with an architectural structure that is skillfully built, with a temple that is put together with great purpose, depicting incredible truths as he walks through the temple. And he's looking at this city, and he's looking at the thrones of David, and he's seeing where judgment and justice is exacted, and the word of God speaks and makes things right, and causes the crooked way to be straight, and makes things the way they're supposed to be. And he's depicting in this poem, through words, this incredible city that's put together so skillfully. 
so harmoniously. And he's relating it to the people of God. We see in 1 Corinthians 12, as God now does not dwell in buildings made with human hands, but God has built us together as the body of Christ. God pieces us together. God puts us together. God builds us together as the body of Christ because his presence is no longer in the temple that Solomon built. His presence is in us. His presence is here as we gather together and we worship him. His presence resides in the body of Christ as he has fit each of us so different, so differently shaped, so skillfully created. As the great architect pieces us together as the body of Christ, we depict in Ephesians chapter 3 who God is and what he's doing in the world to principalities and powers outside of us. They see who God is and what he's doing as they look at us being built together as this beautiful city. Isn't that a great picture? When we look at who the people of God are and why we come together, I, I'm so angry sometimes with my own sin, with my own uh, falling short as I could wake up and say, I don't know if I got time for this. What kind of investment financially, time-wise, life-wise does it take for us to be with the people of God and worship together as the body of Christ for an hour to an hour and a half on the first day of the week? What other investment are we making and to what end? I have to remind myself, you know what? Maybe my kid's not going to be a D1 athlete. And who cares if they are? Maybe, maybe my kid's not going to be able to be on that club team where they play the off-season sport that they've already been playing for eight months every day of the week. Maybe my yard won't look as nice as the neighbors, and the people on the other side might say, oh man, he's really not keeping up on his hedge, or he's not really keeping up on, his, on, on, on the grass. You know what, but my kids will love Jesus, and they'll know the word of God, and their lives will be shaped by the truth of the God of the universe who created it, created them and redeemed them. My life will be adjusted as I walk through my week between Sundays. As I walk through life, I will have been with the people of God and reoriented. You see, the, the, the pilgrim who traveled to Jerusalem and worshipped on these three moments was, was encountering three very big things in these festivals. He was encountering the truth that God had created him, the truth that God had redeemed him, and the truth that God had provided for him. And we get to come together this morning, and we get to worship and recognize a God who created us, a God who redeemed us, and a God who has provided for us. Amen? Love. My heart was glad. My heart was glad. When you said I could go to the house of the Lord, it leapt, my heart leapt with joy to go to the house of the Lord. We get to come together once a week and worship a God who has made it possible for you to live without guilt, 
and to live with purpose. Amen. The tribes go up together. Communities built on the miracle of the gospel. This can only be built by a work of God. And I love to be a part of the people of God and see the miracle of the work of God in your life. To have you see it in my life. To have us look around at each other and see what God is doing in our lives and affirm it. See, as we covenant together as the body of Christ, what we see from Genesis to Revelation is that the people of God together protect the gospel in each other's lives. The body of Christ is really the affirming body group of people that as you covenant with them, they affirm the gospel in you as you persevere to salvation. There could be nothing more important in our lives. God saves you. It's not a work of you. It's a work of God. It's not anything you've done or added to lest anyone should boast. God has saved you, but the fruit of salvation in your life will be played out in the midst of the people of God as they affirm it and say, yes, God has done a work in your life as you persevere and fruit comes out of your life among the body of Christ as you head towards the culmination of what Jesus has already done and you stand before God as justified because of his replacement for you in taking the punishment for your sin. This idea that we have, it's such a deception David Plath, pastor, has been spending a lot of time preaching about this. I've seen clips of it floating around the internet. And it's something as we have planted Missio and planted Renovation Church, we've thought a lot about as the scripture cries out to us about what salvation really is. And I have to say, we have, as a body of Christ, I say, a collective we in America, have done a huge disservice sometimes and are what we thought was the preaching of the gospel. Say a prayer, wave your hand in an altar call, and then walk out of the church, and you're safe. I have to say this because the word of God says it. Can someone please tell me where that's in the Bible? Does it not bother anyone that it's not? The Bible says, believe, repent of your sin. Believe in Jesus and be baptized into the body of Christ. Baptism does not save you. I'm not saying that. But there is an aspect of repentance and belief and then community that affirms the gospel and the fruit of God's saving work in your life together as we worship God. Does that make sense? So the idea that someone has been redeemed and repented of their sin and then just says, I'm kind of on my own here. I'm just going to read my Bible and watch some of my favorite dudes on YouTube. Completely absent from the body of Christ and the life of the church. I don't see that in scripture. I'm not saying from the word of God that you're not saved. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, if you 
are not a part of the body of Christ, if there's not a regenerating work in your heart that begins to produce in you a love and a gladness to be with the people of God and worship God together, to be in relationship with those, then what I'm seeing is I don't know what work is happening in your heart because the work that the Bible describes in the life of the believer who's been redeemed, God begins to regenerate and shape a person amidst the worshiping body of Christ because they love to be together. Does that make sense? Glad to be in the house of the Lord. My mother used to, I got this, it's not the yarn. She used to cross stitch. Anybody do that? I remember as a kid growing up, always seeing uh, my mom cross stitching. I think it helped her sanity with me and my brother. And gave her an avenue by which to ignore our nonsense, I'm sure. Um, but she would cross-stitch, like, really, I don't know, houses and cabins and, and different words and sayings. And I just remember that hobby. And I, it would be interesting because as I would see her cross-stitching, she would cross-stitch on a piece of cloth that was flimsy, right? It's just a flimsy piece of cloth, and she could fold it and move it and cross-stitch through it. But I always knew she was getting close to being done because towards the time of the completed work of this cross-stitching, she would put this wooden frame around it that would screw down tight and cause it to be firm so that you could see the picture clearly. Anybody ever seen that before? And I, I read an illustration about a woman who, who felt like her life was like that. A woman who felt like her life had no frame to it. And she said, I feel loose and flimsy and like anything could happen at any moment. The word of God describes that person. The, the word of God describes the wicked as like chaff. They're, they're blown around by the wind. As the wheat falls heavy to the ground, the chaff is the wind. It just blows them to and fro. Or, or the Bible depicts someone who's, who doesn't know Christ to be, to be like those tossed to and fro by waves of doctrine. And you see some folks walking through life being blown or tossed by waves. Life becomes... I'm going to go wherever subjectively it takes me. I feel this way, so I'm going to go. And now I feel this way, and so I'm going to go. These circumstances are causing this particular feeling. And so my life is going this way by circumstances. And now circumstances are causing me to feel this way, so I'm being blown this way. And what we see here is that the, the body of Christ, the people of God, the church of God produces a frame around the life of somebody that they can begin to live together with the people of God and walk out the word of God amongst God's people in a way that produces security, stability, and a frame around their life. The body of Christ becomes a, a frame. It becomes a framework by which God makes you his workmanship and he begins to work in your life and it produces a frame for the Christian walk so that you can walk according to the word of God together with the people of God in the way that God has designed you to live, worshiping him and bringing glory to him together. That's what we see here as he speaks of the city. We see amidst the people of God, the preaching of the word of God, we see 
worship together. We see the gospel displayed in the Lord's table and in our prayer and in our songs and in the preaching of the word. We see and and hear from the word of God that he has created us and that he has intelligently designed us in a way to fit into his body like a beautiful picture that he, the sovereign God, is painting. We hear that from the word of God amidst the people of God, and we see it displayed as we look around us. We see that God, that God leads us as the head of the church. He is our leader, and we can trust in the moments of life when you're confused and you don't know what's going on and you don't understand why this has to happen. What you can do is you can stand and you can lift your eyes and look up as these psalms depict and say, God, I know I don't know, but I know you know. You understand, you're sovereign, you're in control, and you're leading me as I fit into this body of Christ that you've built together like a well-built city. Happens, there's a security. We see it depicted, and I gotta hurry. We see it depicted in Psalm 73, Psalm of Asaph. We see Asaph is discouraged And I can't read it now for time, but go and take a look at it. You see Asaph in Psalm 73 is discouraged, and he becomes envious of the evil. How many of you have ever felt that way? You look around, oh, they get to do that, and they get to do that, and they get to do that. And you see Asaph saying, have I I kept myself pure and vain? I look to the wicked, and they seem like they get everything they want. They seem well-fed. They seem happy. They seem to go to and fro and do whatever they want. God, have I kept myself pure and vain? And then you see in verse 17 of Psalm 73, he says these words, And then I came into the sanctuary of God, and I understood. What did he do? He came to the sanctuary of God with the people of God, and he allowed the word of God to adjust his thinking, to change his perspective, to reorient him, to think rightly. And he said this, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Every one of their steps may be their last. They walk as if they are on a slippery rock, but my steps are secure. You uphold me. How do we reorient our lives between Sundays? as we go out into our life, as we work, as we deal with people, as we uh, spend time with our families, as we engage in the marketplace, the temptation for paradigm shifting, for our minds to shift, for things to degrade and and to change, for our perspective to get off, we need on a weekly basis to get into the sanctuary of God so he can speak to us through his people, through his word, through the Lord's table, through worship together. There is nothing else you are doing more important than that on a Sunday morning. Amen? And then what it does is worship, it doesn't satisfy, it whets our appetites to continue to worship throughout the week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. As we pray for, as we engage God in our devotional life, The worship of God among God's people on a weekly basis will produce a desire for you to continue to worship God throughout the week. You know, we live in an age of sensationalism, don't we? We live in an age of sensation. Thank you, baby boomers. Do what feels right, right, all you hippies. (laughs) Just do what feels good. Just do what you love. Whatever you feel like doing, that's what you should be doing. How many times have you heard someone give someone that advice? 
You just need to do what feels right to you. I heard two people in my office talking about a divorce that was going to blow up two families, and the one woman said to the other woman, you just got to do what feels right to you. And I'm thinking, that's the worst advice ever. Are we not prone to self-deception? Are our feelings not the most deceptive things? Our, our hearts are desperately wicked. Can I tell you that the word of God declares to us, usually what you feel like doing is the wrong thing to do. The hard thing is the right thing to do. The thing you don't feel like doing. At 5.40 when my alarm goes off, the thing I do not feel like doing is going to the Y and getting on the elliptical. And that's why I'm 30 pounds overweight. You guys understand? <laughs> Don't do what you feel. You do the right thing is declared to us by the word of God. And action produces feeling quicker than feeling will ever produce the right action in your life. The action that God has asked you to take as you do it when you don't feel like doing, will produce in you the feeling that, that this psalmist describes, this love and this gladness to worship and to be with God. When I discipline myself to worship with the people of God, when I discipline myself to read my word and to engage God in prayer, something produces in me a gladness and a love that I didn't have when I wasn't doing it. Action produces the right feeling far quicker than feeling will ever produce action in your life. And as you worship, it's an act that will develop in you feelings for God. It will nurture in your life the emotion that we see depicted in this poem. We'll feel like the psalmist as our heart leaps from time to time to be in the house of the Lord. Worship together adjusts our thinking we see here that he is excited to see the thrones of judgment set in verse 5, the thrones of the house of David. And what we see in these thrones of judgment, judgment really simply is God's decisive word that makes things right. God's decisive word that makes things right. What we see here is similar to what the psalmist sees through the cross of Jesus Christ, we see that God has made things right. Amen? See, the psalmist was worshiping with the people of God. And in his mind, he had depicted the Passover. He had depicted in his mind the festival that reminded him that there was a day when all the people of Israel stood in their house and the angel of death was coming. They were captive in Egypt. And they were looking at the table of this innocent, spotless lamb that had been butchered. That they were eating. And as they heard screams from house to house to house to house throughout Egypt. As the firstborn of every house that did not have the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. Lost, the firstborn died, dropped dead in the midst of the house. The people of Israel stood in their homes looking at the butchered lamb and that firstborn child stared at that lamb saying, that lamb died so I get to live. They celebrated redemption, atonement for sin. 
They celebrated a substitute for them, for sin. And today, we celebrate what all of that was pointing to. It was pointing to the spotless lamb. It was pointing to Jesus as he stood at the Last Supper, and there was no lamb on the table because he was the lamb. He was the one who was going to be the substitute for all of us to replace us because God is just, and his decisive word is that judgment must be exacted on sin. All of us understand that. There's so many sins that take away, that leave debt, that hurt people. Look around our world. Look at, look at those who have who've been murdered, those who have been abused, those who have been tortured, those who have been dishonored, those who have been, had something done against them. Every one of us, to some degree, has had something done against us that has caused debt, and every one of us has done something. And justice, because we have a good God, he's a just God. He does not leave injustice to just ride. He exacts justice, but because he's a good God and a loving God, he created a substitute. Because if he was just only to us, every one of us deserves judgment. The judgment of God in this passage is God's decisive word that makes everything right. And what we see in Romans 3 is that he is the just God and the justifier because he sent his son to be that lamb to stand in front of you and in front of me and take upon himself the judgment for sin. And because he's our substitute, he has provided a way. His righteous life that was perfect, that none of us could live, becomes our righteousness as we're in Christ. And the punishment he took upon himself for all the sin of the world is taken on him. He hung on the cross. He experienced separation from God as he cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? He became the most despicable sight in the, in the history of the world as he became sin for all of us as our replacement for us. So we now can be redeemed and forgiven and be given something we could have never earned and did nothing to contribute to, his righteousness. So when God, the just God, looks at us, he doesn't see all your screw-ups and everything you've done wrong, but when he looks at you, he sees Jesus and declares you not guilty. The only response to that in the life of a human being could be, God, I'm glad to worship you. I have a joy and a gladness and a love in my heart to be with the people of God and sing songs that declare who you are, what you've done. And God, please speak to me, your word, so I know how to live, not to earn something because you've already done it, but to worship you with my life so that I live in such a way that declares your glory because I'm a guilty sinner who deserved justice and you were the replacement for me. So my only response is worship. My only response is love. And there is nothing better I can do with my life in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ than to be with the people of God and worship you. The last thing the psalmist does as he prays for peace and security. 
for Jerusalem for the sake of his brothers, for the sake of his companions. And that prayer for peace and security, we get to live in and continue to pray for. That word peace is shalom. To try to define shalom in a dictionary for you would be much like defining you by your social security number. I mean, it's the depth and the richness of that word is inexhaustible. But it is a word that describes who we are as the people of God for one reason, because of Jesus and what he's done for us. It depicts peace. It depicts all aspects of wholeness from God's will completed in us. You get to be whole. It depicts rivers and streams of living water that are like a joy that goes beyond your ability to understand. It depicts a wholeness in an identity. It's who you are. It's an identity that every human being craves for. Look around an average public high school in America today and you will see human beings crying out for identity. Am I the, am I the kids that are kind of little off and skateboard and, and wear these kind of things? Am I the jock? Am I the mean girl? Am I the cool kid? Am I the weird kid? And I'm just, am I the, now today the transgender kid? Am I the kid that's, that's struggling with identity? And maybe there's something going on in their life where they are struggling with that, where there's something going on in their mind and in their heart and in their biology where they're having difficulty and they're saying, just love me, just affirm me. I need someone to give me some kind of identity and tell me I'm okay. And they're looking for it in every place where they're not going to find it. Your identity, who you are, is wrapped up in the shalom of God, the peace of God through Jesus who has created you and he knows exactly what he created you for. And your identity and who you are is who you are because he declares it, the God who made you declares it. And you get to live out who you are and the truth of what you were created for among the people of God as we confess our sins to each other, live in relationship and covenant with each other, and worship God together as his people in his great city. Amen? God will give you identity. He knows who you are. He knows what will bring streams of living water and joy to your life. Stop living like the person in Jeremiah and drinking from cisterns of dirt when God has given you wells deep wells full of living water. Amen? God's called us to live in that kind of community together. Releases streams of living water. He prayed for security and prosperity. That word I'm not going to try to pronounce. But here's what he's praying for and here's what we have in Christ. We have a relaxed stance of one who knows. Listen to this. You can have, among the people of God, because of Jesus, a relaxed stance of one who knows that God is over us, that Christ is with us, that security is there for you with a historic cross-centered reality, and that the person who knows every moment of existence, you're a person who knows that every moment of your existence is at the disposal and under the mercy of a sovereign God. 
Amen? You can have peace and you can have security because of who God is among the people of God together in the city of God. Amen? I've gone long and I always bust on Mike for going long. But we're here worshiping with the people of God. And I know it's Father's Day and everybody's hot. But I hope that the word of God with you adjusts and reorients our thinking together. Let me close with this. What do you love? You really get an idea or a picture of what you love when you're in a situation where you don't have to do something. You're not forced. There's no legal requirement. You can do whatever you want. What do you love? What do you choose to do in that moment? What are you excited for? What are you anticipating in your week? What are you worshiping with your life? Who's on the throne of your life? What are you pursuing as your greatest treasure in life? To the degree in my life that it is not God and worshiping with the people of God, I need to repent and ask God to change me. Anybody here with me on that? I've been thinking a lot about the fact that my daughter Sophia is going to be going to college in a couple years. Life flies by. Anybody agree? Flies by. She is now behind the wheel of a car. So we have great need to pray together this morning. <laughs> and we've been looking at colleges, looking online, talking about where she would go, talking about what she was due. And I have a consuming thought. I have a consuming thought in my mind. You know, other than the price, I don't really care. <laughs> I don't care what college she goes to to the degree that the question and the consuming thought of my mind is wherever she lives, where will she worship God and go to church? What people will she be among where she can worship, hear the truth of God, worship God, have people confirm the gospel in her life, encourage the grace of God and the word of God and the gospel in her life as she spends four years listening to people who are going to tell her all sorts of crazy stuff that I hope I've prepared her not to listen to. Will she, will she, I'm half kidding, will she be in a place where she's worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth among a people who are declaring the word of God to her? Because there is nothing more important than that in her life. As we think about where we would work, where would we live, where would we go to school, the consuming thought of our life is what church, what body, what group of people are we going to get together and worship with and hear the word of God through and, and declare the truths of God among? What people are we going to allow into our lives that we can confess our sin to and grow in the word of God together? As I have said before in this church, when the horse is dead, dismount, right? I have beaten this to death. Let's pray together. God, we 
are so grateful for your people. We're so grateful for the gospel. We're so grateful that you produce in us not just a love for you, but as we love you, we can't help but love your bride. We can't help but love your people. Even in the midst sometimes of disillusionment and disappointment or, or uh, people in the church or leadership letting us down or, or being hurt, God, we recognize through your word that you've still called us to love your people, to be together, to worship together, to covenant with one another towards one end, glorifying and worshiping you. Ultimately, God, your church is about you. Not about us, but about us worshiping you. There's nothing more relevant than our need and your worth to worship you. We trust you in this. In Jesus' name, everybody said.